Hi, and welcome to the second part of the minister episode. Now, last week, the introduction got a little messed up in audio, so we've re-uploaded it without the introduction. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part, I really encourage you to do so. Now, for the second part, it was the same day conversation, but we invited Mackenzie Peck, the founder of Math Magazine and a pornographer themselves, to the conversation and to further address the similarities and discrepancies between the pornographic world and religion. As we see, these themes are very present, obviously, in legislation and and the government and so many facets of life that, although we don't choose to engage with religion in, in those ways, it is incredibly present. But even in our pop culture with Lil Nas's X new music video, religion and sex in conversation go hand in hand and in controversy go hand in hand as well. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the rest of this conversation. Next week, we've got a great episode with, for you with a really good friend of mine, Ajia Misiel. So without further ado, enjoy the rest of this episode. And thank you so much, Trip, the minister, for being so open and vulnerable with us. In terms of sex being mis like sex being considered misbehavior, even like mm-hmm. outside of a religious context, just in terms of like cultural shame, I that uh, like that definitely feeds into um the perception of sexual assault, especially um mm. in in the today as well, but especially earlier, like in the nineties as well, it was even worse in terms of victim victim shaming and choosing someone who's choosing to be promiscuous or choosing to have sex being considered um like somewhat deserving of this punishment i i've heard a lot of cases from and i'm not saying this is any way representative of religion itself but a lot of cases of okay well this is like god punishing or this is a way um um, free 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 to fall back in line or, or this is what happens with sex and a lot of the lack of conversation surrounding sex and and sexuality and and the want to have sex, of course, is cultural, but also I do like when we're talking about the shame that the church teaches as well, um, the relationship between those two things. How do you feel like, how much do you feel that bleeds into the real world, um, into, into the general, even not even specifically religious, but how that shame bleeds into victim shaming as well? No, I think it's, Victim shaming is absolutely a part of it. Um, You know, I was shamed for my sexual behavior um, in ways that were very different than the women I knew at the time. Right? Um, There's a, I think there's a really good reason why the ethical slut was published in 1992. Right? That's the year I graduated college. I don't make any connection. Beyond that, I try not to, right? But it is interesting to me that at a time when any sexual exploration was shamed because of religion, because of HIV AIDS, um, because of sort of the leftover sense of misbehavior from the 60s, right? Everyone was misbehaving. As much as it may have been about sex positivity, at least culturally speaking, everyone was perceived as having misbehaved in some way. They were breaking down barriers. Um, You know, all of that played into it. There really wasn't a way to escape it. Um, 
you know, so it was easier, I think, speaking for myself, it was easier to imagine um, that I was doing something inappropriate at best, wrong at worst, um, sinful, right? Like this, since I was dealing with religious language, sinful, um, damning, if you want to get really scary with it. Um, all of that is there. So victim shaming, I mean, it's not even victim shaming. It's assuming that if you're female, you're a victim, you're a sexual victim. So it can be consensual sex and you're still a victim of my promiscuity, not your own, which of course you then inherit my promiscuity and you get to be a slut mm -hmm. and I get to be a guy who's sowing his wild oats and who should have known better, mm -hmm. right? Like that's the worst I had, I would have gotten. Whereas female, female bodied people got thrown to the wayside all the time. Well, it's, it's taking away agency and that, yeah. happens, that happens within sexual assault, but that also happens within the perception of, of that, that um, women don't have sexual desires or that it, it doesn't exist and it's all to serve the man. When And if that's the case, then rape is fine because that is to serve the man. I think that that behavior can get so, that that language can get so um, tripped up in itself and, and it does end up being horrible. <laughs> Right. and have a, a very horrible impact but i do also know that at least in people that i've known have been able to turn to the church or to their versions of um religious institution or spirituality to heal from certain things as well mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. there is space for that in in the new in the new wave or in the new yeah of, yeah of i think so i think so too um and so Mackenzie, we're going to get you in here because now I want to ask a little bit about pornography um, okay. outside of the general um, voice that has been heard from, from religious folks about opinions of pornography, that it's all wrong. Therefore, there is no such thing as ethical or unethical, or even again, we can talk about perception of eth what is ethical to you being in the church and Mackenzie, what is ethical to you? not being affiliated to any necessary religion, but living a life that you consider is is right by your personal values and how that manifests in porn itself. So Mackenzie, as um, the editor-in-chief of a magazine that considers itself ethical and and to the best of your ability, what how do you describe the way that we make our porn or or what what leads you to say that this is ethical in contrast to other sources right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I, a phrase I use a lot is like, don't be a dick. I think just setting the intention to like care for people and look out for everybody you're working with and you're like uh, serving, um, I think is, is, our, is our standard for, for ethics. It's also listening. We always show up to every conversation. Um, even if the intention might be a little bit uh, questionable, uh, we always show up with an open heart and speak honestly. Um, and I think I've always been a, like a servant leader is kind of what it's called. And, and I just so badly want to use the authority of a publisher as a, of a media company to basically deem people worthy and valid and hot. <laughs> um, that's the responsibility that I've chosen to, to take on. And um, similar to the question I asked Trip earlier, the 
foreign industry, and I'm talking the industry in the capitalistic sense, not in the sense of exploring sexuality or presentation of that in media, but the porn industry has been a vessel of so much harm for sex workers and so much further exploitation and fetishization and, and harm for so many people. Even in terms we can talk about the the little kids that it's, it's the first thing that they experience, which you know is could, could be responsibilized to whichever party. But how do you separate the the way of the harm the institution has caused? Um, similar but in different, obviously in a different scale to Christianity. But how do you move forward in this industry knowing um, what the institution has stood for for so long? I mean, that's why I'm so passionate about it. It's like the dominant forces in the porn industry, like with a capital P porn hub, like the fact that they dominate so strongly, both from an educational perspective and like um, like media domination, uh, that drives me crazy. That drives me so crazy because you have like, when I started math, I was having these amazing personal experiences, these kind of revelations. Um, I, um, didn't always go about it the best way, but did the best I could. And to see that not reflected in the media available to me is why I do this. And people need to understand that there's so much more to this. There's so, so, so much more. And in a way, I kind of feel like um, porn, like mainstream porn and religion institutions are almost like in cahoots. Like they kind of feed off of each other in a really um, powerful way. Thanks guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because it's like very shame based, you know, you go to these sites with all the pop-ups and stuff like that. And it's like, let's sensationalize the hell out of this and trap you in this kind of narrative of like, can you believe it? Like, oh my gosh, this is bad. But like, that's also going to make you come, isn't it? Like, it's, <laughs> I, I completely agree. And, and that's such a, um, the, the, the quiet side of it, the shameful side of it, the, the um, taboo side of it is where all that harm festers. And that applies to both absolutely in terms of the denial of the sexual desires of, of people or what harm actually constitutes of and who's doing it. Because often who runs these, the people who are in power are either the ones allowing or commit or like actually making this harm happen. And I think I, it's mm -hmm. important to mention that like nobody is safe from this. Like I have shame around looking at porn and I like every everybody is touched by this. And that's part of the amazing power of uh, organized religion and the porn industry. And to just recognize it is a really big deal. Absolutely. And so to that, I have a question for both of you and I'll start with Trip. but what was your first experience with porn and how, how do you think that has continued to present itself in your life to this day, whether within your field or not? Yeah. Um... My first experience with porn was my father's Playboy subscription. Um, and I remember being uh, at second grade and not understanding any of it, but running outside with um, the CB edition. Um, Mackenzie might remember this from like maybe 1976-ish, Mackenzie, since I know you collect some of these old Playboy issues, but it was the CB issue and it was all like trucker themed and 
all this stuff, but it was about CB radios. And it was 1976 and I was a little boy and it was about CB radios and I was thrilled and I came running down the hall. Daddy, daddy, look, radios. He's like, not radios, not radios. Um, so um, that was my initial um, sort of experience. Um, but definitely when I was a preteen and a teen and starting to experiment and looking for um, fodder for the imagination, my father's Playboy subscription was pretty, pretty key in all of that. And, and I did read it too. I didn't just consume it um, for my sexual predilections. Um, it was, it was really interesting, especially, you know, all the letters to the editor and people asking questions about sexuality and what that meant. And Playboy was way ahead of the curve. Um, we still, and I, I really loved Mackenzie's point about power brokers being in cahoots with one another, whether they be religious or, or pornographic power brokers. They're feeding on the same narrative. They're able to sell what they've got because they're feeding on the same narrative of shame. Um, finding a way, and I, I, when I lived in Chicago, I knew a woman who was an editor at Playboy and she was working so hard to get shame out of anything that they did, right? Um, which was hard because even Playboy fell, fell into um, the habit of using shame to sell, right? Um, all the, the college issues, you know, what kind of girl would pose for Playboy in a college issue? And, and she's, your, she's the girl of your dreams because she's the one who's gonna take you home. Mm. Um, you know, all of this kind of stuff. She's a cheerleader, she's pure and everything's great. And by the way, she's going to screw your brains out. And that's why you're looking at this. Um, that was the introduction of the whole girl next door concept. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, so I think back to what you're talking about um, of shame cells, fear cells. And, and I think that back to the religious history of the church, even selling indulgences because the church went broke and they're like, well, buy this little piece of paper and you're actually going to go to heaven. And, and there's just, there's, yeah, there's, there's this not only pornography in the church, but capitalism as a whole has, has, I feel like is, is the main point of damage for this. And it's the ability of using very, in my opinion, wholesome and beautiful and not not to be a dick, but the word pure, pure concept of sex and spirituality and resources and, and love and, 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 and sex and coming and, and praying and all these things that are genuinely, if we look back to human history, ours, they're human. They're, they're ours to, to, to do, to, to be, to, to manifest, to play with, to do whatever the fuck we want with. And we don't have, that has been monopolized by, like fantasy has been monopolized by pornography and spirituality and, 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 the, and the looking for more, which is a instant human quality, just as much as sex, it has been monopolized by the church as well. So it's, it's just very sad. I mean, it, it's sad because in, in its nature, it, it is what we are meant to do. We're meant to, to believe in something or we're meant to have sex. Um, but back to the question about pornography, Mackenzie, what was your first interaction with pornography? And I think I could guess the impact it's had on your life, but why don't you <laughs> tell me? And I, so I started going to therapy and, and regularly, you know, looking back into my past or the, 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 the themes in my life, the sort of 
recurring challenges that I have all go back to math. <laughs> and it's affirming in a way that's really great and, and kind of trippy, but um, I digress. Uh, so the first porn I ever saw, it was, it's really sad. Um, I was at a friend's house and there were um, shitty inkjet printouts from the internet left in the tray. And then I found stacks of them. And I don't know if I'm misremembering. I remember it being really fucking sad, but I think that might be me now thinking that it was sad. Like the, the dad, like didn't, like I presume it's the dad, <laughs> um, hadn't, um, yeah, word. <laughs> um, um, hadn't taken the effort to like change the ink cartridge. Like it was like running out of color and like, like the lack of um, pride in the quality, the lack of care in how, you know, how it was being made and consumed um, haunts me. Um, I think at the time it was like all girls and like all like, there was girl on girl, I feel like and also being like turned on. So like this conflict of like, I want, I think it was right around when I was starting to find out about discover masturbation for myself. And I like, I was definitely addicted to it for a period, which is a whole other story um, in my youth. But um, this simultaneous feeling of the shame and um, the genuine feelings of arousal. Yeah. Um. And how did you, and how did you assimilate that? How, like moving forward now, of course you're at a point where, well, not of course, but now you're at a point where, um, you know, it, it seems like you've worked some things out and, and, and you've made it, you know, your, your job literally to, to produce the content that you would have liked to see as a child. But how do you assimilate that? Um, well, not as a child, but as an 18 plus, um, <laughs> and, but, how do you assimilate that 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 exactly that shame of uh, or the disgust for the quality or even maybe for the content initially um and 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 that feeling of arousal those being interconnected because as a, I feel like for the young um for the young sexual for the first sexual awakening a lot of it is is denial that has to do with shame or, or very conflicting feelings of what you're supposed to feel when you see it and then what you actually look for to masturbate or to, to feel something later. Yeah, I mean, when I think about those years, I mean, I don't remember a lot of my childhood because of like trauma or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that, I think, what do I think? I think that at, when I when I imagine that time, all my feelings and ideas around sexuality were very muddy like I think of like dirty bath water for some reason like sort of like nobody really talked about it it was very kind of mysterious like I didn't I wouldn't be able to tell you what sex was but I kind of like intuited something about it um I wouldn't be able to tell you how those images made me feel but I like went home and masturbated inspired by them you know like I wasn't making those connections at all um and to your point about like children finding this stuff, like I, I feel like comfortable, like, how do I say this? Like it's, I think it would be okay for kids to find math magazine. Like, and I think 
that's a difficult distinction to make for people. And it's a complicated territory to even like approach um, that maybe we can save for another episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think the feelings of, of shame and like confusion are resolved for me at all. Like, especially as a bisexual non-binary person. <laughs> And Trip, for you, in, in terms of whatever questions um, you had growing into yourself and, and now, because I would say both of you pursue your versions of, of resolution to some extent. You're, you're both pursuing like a life that um, is personal to you. It's not just a job. It, it is your life. And, and I think that's very specific and it's very blessed to be able to do that, especially in today's economy. So I, I um, being, uh, you know, like you're still both very young and you have a very full life ahead of you, but not being in your early twenties, like myself, um, Trip. first, um, I'll go to you. Do you feel like some of that shame has been, solved or resolved or you've made peace with that um and if so how did you get there um first of all thanks for hurting me with that age stuff appreciate that um that was funny um yeah no when you said 1999 i'm like yeah no, no. i got i hear you i hear you totally could be your dad um so uh the but the shame piece um I too have been in therapy off and on my adult life. And I love the onion metaphor that these issues are like peeling an onion. You never, it never ever goes away. Like the sense of shame never goes away. It's your ability to encounter it and, and give it context. So, you know, um, finding ways to flirt with my wife, right? That don't embarrass us both, right? And then when they do, um, how do we how do we resolve that um you know we we tease each other because we we're both inclined to be embarrassed easily right so um and there's some shame in that and so how do we step away from that shame um how do i turn it over um, you know some religious languages how do you turn it over to god and i do try to use some of that religious language like how do i just give this away i this is not serving me in any way at all can you carry this that would be awesome um and as much as uh sex is still a taboo conversation even among progressive christians um you know it's not taboo for god it's just not you can bring anything god i did this I, you know i have my affinity for red tube um not only is it unethical because it's free <laughs> but it's unethical because you know it i'm ashamed of it right like i don't like that i use it um so how do i find um you know ethical porn porn that's made to go on the journey with you right that admits that yeah this is their shame in this um that's been the because there's you know like playboy is shameless penthouse is shameless um, club is totally shameless. Um, these are the magazines that I grew up with. Um, finding a magazine like math was really encouraging for me to start asking questions differently, um, for myself, just, um, 
in terms of language, um, what's considered queer, what's not. Again, because, and not to attach everything to the AIDS epidemic, but you know, the conversation that we were having in the 80s is either you were gay or you were straight. And if you, you were gay, you were either gay or lesbian. And there's nothing else. And if you're, none, if you're not those, then you're straight. Like it, it straight's to the default. If you're not gay and you're not a lesbian, then you're straight. And anything else you feel around that, anything else that sort of grays that in any way um, is just your own hang up and you gotta get over it. It's the way that you're not masculine enough. It's the way you're not feminine enough. It's all of that. So um, I feel like I'm like kind of in between your ages in an interesting way. And I too have been, I've been on gay TikTok lately <laughs> and I've been reflecting on how like growing up, like the idea of being gay was not a common, like right. it was unusual. It wasn't really an option, you know, like right. a lot of it um, is also what is accessible to you. And I think like Chip, that makes sense that in rural Virginia, that's not a conversation that was being had. Um, and then Mackenzie, like, I'm sure, well, I grew up in Argentina and we don't have a word for queer. Like we don't have, that doesn't exist in, in, in our language. And, um, you know, being bisexual, I still, pe people in my life, like in my family think it doesn't exist. Um, it's just, there's not language and there's no resources for that. So it really is a, is a you know, it's just different sizes for, for the situation. But the one thing that is constant is that it has to be, it's an announcement. It is a, it is, it is a difference. It is a separation from the norm. It is a pursuit of something different. It automatically grants you a separate life. And that's, while it might be true for some circumstances, that's completely the fault of, of, of the, the environment. It's never, it's never that all gay people are designed to, to act some sort of way or, or to be some sort of way. Same as gender in general, you know, doesn't really exist. So women aren't designed to be some sort of way now there are men. It's all what you're allowed in, under your circumstances. But I think that a lot of what has to do with shame is is any sort of difference of what you grew up with. So I think it's really interesting to say like Playboy isn't that much shame because that is that is what I, I, I grew up with or, or these or these things that you've paid for or these things that your your father, you know that you, for a fact your father had. So that makes it normal. That's always been normal to you growing up. But the second, but now for example, RedTube or different sources of somewhat exploitative pornography is such a different reaction because that does feel against what you grew up with. But it, it, it's, and that goes back to what is ethical because a lot of people would consider Playboy not to be ethical because of the piece of shit that Hugh Hefner was and among a lot of other things that happened. But, um, I, I, and that's what I mean. And a lot of people, you know, who grow up now with queer parents or trans parents or, or gay parents or whatever will have that to some extent not be shameful and, and it's the initiation of that conversation, whatever lives that are touched by by you individually is normalizing some aspect of your life just like when Tripp saw going back to the beginning when Tripp saw Mackenzie's um a little video of, of what you're packing to a party and and that made it normal that you pack sometimes a toy and sometimes you take your sunglasses or sometimes you take a joint or whatever so um I I find like this origin story between you very very reflective of what we're trying to do here and and what the the source of all these conversations are 
we are going on for so long. I just want to ask you both like one last question related to it could be within without your field just in terms of of your personal journey um what what's like main point of focus or or of accountability or characteristics of yourself that you pay attention to that allowed you to open up to this conversation about sexuality or or maybe to queerness or maybe to god or or whatever it is that has fulfilled or somewhat reassured y'all throughout your questions um whoever wants to can go first <laughs> um my whole life I've been like 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 maybe like maybe even too young like you, you know the like Woody Allen like fuck Woody Allen but like him being like neurotic as a kid like like I relate to that and and my whole life um being like what is this how can I make the most of it in kind of pursuing that relentlessly um and yeah i think that's through question asking and i think it's through uh genuine reflection and picking up on these little threads of like oh this i think this is going to lead me somewhere and i think listening to myself uh paying attention um has made it possible for me to find my purpose in life and that's a very scary thing to commit to, to say like, okay, this, my whole, my whole life, I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and commit that to this. And I think that relates a lot to religious practice. Um, cause it's a lot of faith and it's a lot of commitment. And I honestly have so much faith in humanity and what we're capable of and the ways that sex is at the root of a lot of what's holding us back. And I want, I want to help. <laughs> I want so badly to make the, this world what I believe it can be. And I think my way to do that for whatever reason is, is through sex. And throughout my life, there's been little moments that have pushed me in that direction. And I decided to take the call, pick up the call, listen to that message and um I, yeah <laughs> and and i really i th i relate to a lot of religious concepts i connect deeply with a lot of uh spiritual ideas be here now is a book that helped me a lot that draws from all religions and unifies it in a way that helped me a lot um, and I believe in the original goodness of Christianity. Um, <laughs> thank you again, Rachel. Try not to cry. <laughs> I love you. Um, that's a great closing question. I think that what Christians are called to do as a general rule is to kind of live in the gap where life is broken in those broken places. Um, and so I find myself um, today and maybe in 20 years, it'll be different um, because society's needs will have changed. But right now standing in the gap between sexuality and shame, it seems to be a really good place to be. Um, and in part because the church has done such a 
great job at creating that gap, right? Like it's, it's, it's insidious stuff and we can do better. Um, so why don't we? I mean, one of the things that I thought would happen when um, my own denomination and other denominations um, started ordaining LBGTQ people is that we would start having a conversation about sex, but we didn't. We still don't talk about sex. We don't talk about straight sex. We don't talk about LBGTQ sex. We just don't talk about sex because sex is the third rail. You just don't do it. Um, and I think for a lot of us, I, I have a friend, um, Leah Scholl, who wrote a book called I Heart Sex Workers. She did all this sex work stuff as um, a pastor in Richmond and between Richmond and DC. And what she first started doing was how do I get in here and save these people? And then, then it all changed. And it's one of those kinds of stories where it's like, you can't, it's just so much more complicated than this. And we got to get our heads out of our butts and realize that, you know, the sex trade industries are really complex and it's not all drug addled people who have no alternative or, you know, whatever the Christian fantasy is of sex work. Um, so how do we actually have conversations with real people? And so to do that, I have to be willing as a Christian in the general, as a pastor specifically, to have conversations about human sexuality as it actually happens. Not as I wish it would happen, um, not at how I'm afraid it might happen. Um, and the Venn diagram that suggests that there's an overlap <laughs> between <laughs> Um, what I'm afraid happens and what actually happens and how much I might enjoy some of that. Um, you know, we, we got to figure out a way to have a conversation about it all. Um, and that's what I'm about right now. I mean, the, the people I study, the work that I do for my dissertation, for my doctoral work, um, it's all about people who are deconstructing their faith. And a lot of those folks are coming out and they're basically queer refugees in the church. They have no place to go home to. Um, they lose their families. Um, that dynamic still exists. The suicide rate among LGBTQ people is higher than many other populations. I mean, the, you were talking about our age, and I could just ramble on about this, but I mean, the suicides in my high school, my rural high school, were all guys who were wrestling with their sexuality. They couldn't see a way out, and they couldn't imagine that being queer was a positive life. So that's so 17 year olds are ending their lives, right? All of that has to stop. It's, it, it sh that's the statistics that we stare at shouldn't exist. Um, so that's what gets me sort of fired up in all of this. Um, and then just my own needs. You know, what, what I want for myself sexually, what I want for me and my wife sexually. I wanna be able to have those conversations. I don't want that to be, I don't think we should be as a couple, um, how do I wanna say this? There's nowhere to go with the conversations. There's no safe place. I'm looking for safe places to have the conversations. Um, one of the things I like about what Mackenzie's trying to do is create a safe place to have those conversations for anybody. Um, so yeah, that's where I am with it. Oh, this has been, so, this has been so good think for me at least um thank you so much to both of you for being so honest and and for having this conversation i i really like i genuinely think this is a conversation that a lot of people have wanted to have with prospective people in their life or in their church or, or in whatever community they are and, and 
I feel like this has helped me a lot. I hope it'll help a lot of people, but thank you so much, both of you. Um, and if you, unless you have any final words, I'll, I'll let you go, but thank you so much. Seriously, Tripp and Mackenzie, this has been great. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a ton of fun. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. So that's all we have with Tripp and Mackenzie. Thank you so much to both for engaging so honestly in this conversation. Tripp, we would love to have you back eventually. So also listeners, if you have any other further questions that have to do with religion or from a religious perspective, or if you yourself would like to engage with Tripp in our episode, please reach out and we'll find a way to make that happen. Now, the last thing I'll leave you with is that we are currently having a fundraiser for many things and for many of our future operations, both at Math Magazine and at our podcast. So I will link it to the bio if you have the time and resources. Please support us because we want to be able to continue being very picky with who we advertise with and who we engage with to be able to bring the best pace possible and the most honest and, and value driven place that we possibly can within this very capitalistic world so I'll link all of our usual information down below but including our fundraiser so if you get a chance please check it out now have a great night uh, have a great day <laughs> and I will speak to you very soon